Good morning. Trust that you're here anticipating to hear from God this morning. It's an exciting thing to open the Word of God and anticipate that the God of the universe is going to speak to us individually. Why don't you join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13 today. You know, in the 5,600 years of recorded history, there have been about 1,500 wars. That's on average about three per year. And Jesus assures us in Matthew 24 that it won't get any better. So one of the things you can count on in life is conflict. Human history is littered with fractured relationships. Most famous family feud in American history was the fight between the Hatfields and McCoys. They were two families that lived across the Tug Fork Creek from each other. The Hatfields were in West Virginia. The McCoys were in Kentucky. This feud started right at the end of the Civil War and continued into the 20th century. In this feud, at least 12 men were killed, one was hung, and several were thrown into prison. You know what started the feud? A pig. They found a pig and they couldn't decide whose property it was on. And that's how it began. And today the term Hatfields and McCoys is a synonym for conflict. Now the one place you might expect to find a no-conflict zone is the church. The church should be like home on the range. You know, where seldom is heard a discouraging word. But the reality is that churches have conflicts too. I read about a church in Mayfield, Kentucky that had a conflict in the 1800s. This is supposed to be a true story. The church had a circuit-riding preacher who rode on his horse from church to church. And some in the church decided that they would, were going to put a peg on the wall in the lobby so that the circuit-riding preacher could hang his coat and hat on that peg. Others in the church disagreed with that idea because it made the lobby look a little bad. It, it became such a dispute that the church split, and half the church left and started the anti-peg Baptist church. How would you like your name as a church to begin with the word anti Church conflict is nothing new. There was plenty of conflict in the church of Corinth in the first century. Paul had planted this church in in the city of Corinth, which which was really uh, the first century equivalent to Las Vegas. And they had a lot of internal conflicts that he addressed in the first letter he wrote to them. They, They had divided up the church into little cliques. Uh, They were having lawsuits against other members of the church. Uh, Rather than having potluck suppers, they were having no-luck suppers. They were bringing their own food and eating it themselves and allowing other people to go without. And one of the reasons Paul writes this second letter is that false teachers had come in and caused the Corinthian Christians to criticize and scrutinize Paul. They were saying he's too short. They were saying he's too timid. They were saying he doesn't preach well enough. 
At one point in time, Paul had been close friends with these people, and now their relationship was being threatened. And so Paul addresses that as he closes this second letter to the Corinthians. And as we look at this today, I want it to be practical for you. So right now, I want you to think of somebody in your life that used to be a very close friend. And maybe something happened. Maybe you don't even know what happened. But that relationship is now strained. It's not the way it used to be. I want you to just be open today to the Lord to say, I'm going to do whatever the Lord asked me to do to make that relationship the way it should be, to fix that fractured friendship. I don't know about you, but I need all the friends I can get. The British pastor Charles Kingsley wrote this about friends. A blessed thing it is for any man or woman to have a friend. One human soul whom he can trust utterly, who knows the best and the worst of us, and who loves us in spite of all our faults, who will speak the honest truth to us, who again will comfort and encourage us in the day of difficulty and sorrow when the world leaves us alone to fight our own battle as we can. Someone has said that a friend is someone who comes in when everyone else has walked out. Real friends are invaluable because they are very, very rare. And I want us to learn some lessons today from Paul's effort to fix a fractured friendship. I've listed five of them in your bulletin. Number one, value people over possessions. Now, the church at Corinth had provided financial support for other apostles and other teachers, but Paul reminds them in chapter 12 and 14 that he hasn't taken their support and he doesn't intend to take their support. Look at verse 14 of chapter 12. Here for this third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. I'm not going to be a burden to you. I'm not going to take anything financially from you. Why not? Look at what he goes on to say. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. I don't seek what's yours, I seek you. Now here's an important relational principle. People are more valuable than things. In our consumer-driven culture, we tend to work harder to accumulate possessions than we do to accumulate friends. And that's unfortunate. The the mentality in our world is it's okay to step on people if it gets you where you want to be and gets you the things you want. And oftentimes we adapt that same attitude as Christians and we fail to realize that people are more valuable than possessions. Francis Schaeffer was one of the most brilliant theologians and authors of the 20th century. He married Edith, an author herself. They got married in the 1930s when they were extremely poor, and for their honeymoon they splurged and rented a rustic cabin with an indoor bathroom for $1.50 a night. Edith was wearing a beautiful white suit made of costly fabric. She had made it herself. I don't know what it was, maybe silk. After their wedding, they were going on their honeymoon. 
they decided to stop at a little ice cream shop and have a milkshake. She got a chocolate milkshake, spilt it on her brand new outfit, and ruined it. Years later, she wrote this. It was a vivid first lesson of the basic fact of relationships that people matter more than things. Fran remembers clearly that he felt sorry, but that he felt the magic moment of starting out together was more important than the spoiled skirt. Typical guy. He also remembers that I started to make a fuss about it, but then I stopped and made a decision to ignore the stain. It was a decision we would make many times in our lives together. It was a deliberate choice that the broken, torn, spilled, crushed, burned, scratched, smashed, spoiled thing was not as important as the person or the memory. Have you learned that? Have you ever gotten so upset about a thing that you broke a person? I have my favorite mug. If you see me around here in the week, I walk around like this. I'm always carrying a coffee mug. I have my favorite. About a week ago, I was walking out of my office, and I slammed the mug into the door and, and uh, broke it. And Robin saw that I had broken my mug, and she said, I think I can fix that. And she glued the handle back on my mug. It's as good as new. And I was thinking, you know, we will make the effort to fix a thing if it's broken. I wonder if we will take the same effort to fix a relationship when it's broken. Second lesson. First is people are more important than possessions. Second, we're to consider other believers as family. Look at the end of verse 14. Paul says, here for this third time, I'm sorry, let me get in the middle of the verse. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Now, Paul considered himself to be the father of the church at Corinth because he had led them to Christ. These people were his spiritual children. And he reminds us here that the church is not an organization. The church is a family. And we are to treat each other as family. Now, sometimes that doesn't relate today because oftentimes families are not the way families should be today. Sometimes families are very dysfunctional. In the 1930s, a songwriter named Dwight Latham wrote this song after reading a paragraph by Mark Twain about a dysfunctional family. See if you can follow this. Many, many years ago, when I was 23, I got married to a widow pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter with flowing hair of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon the two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. Now my daughter was my mother, for she was my father's wife. 
To, compli to complicate the matters worse, although it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby then became brother-in-law to my dad, which made my son my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, then that also made him brother to the widow's grown-up daughter, who, of course, was my stepmother. Father's wife then had a son who kept them on the run, and he became my grandson, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me really blue because although she is my wife, she is my grandma too. <laughs> if my wife is my grandmother, then I am her grandchild, and every time I think of it, it simply drives me wild. For now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As the husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. Now, there's a family who puts the fun in dysfunctional. We're to be relating to each other as family. You know, the one thing my older brother and I did most growing up was fight. When I think about my older brother, we fought. We fought about everything. We were so competitive. Everything became a fight for us. But you know, at the end of the day, we were still brothers. And that's the way families are. You can quarrel, you can quibble, you can quiver, you can quake, but you can't quit a family. We could fight all day long, but at mealtime, guess what? We sat down at the table together. We could fight all day long, but at bedtime, guess what? We slept in the same room together. And the fascinating dynamic about that is my brother could just beat the snot out of me all day long. But if somebody else tried to mess with me, guess who stepped up and defended me? My brother. You see, that's the way families work. And the thing about a family is that, that you don't get to pick your family members. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family, and I won't tell the joke about that. You don't pick your brothers, they just come along. And the same is true in the family of God. They just pop out of the spiritual womb, and there they are. You know, at the hospital, you don't go to that window where they have all the babies and say, which one do we want? You have to go there and go, which one's ours? Which one did we get? Because they are a gift from the Lord. You have no choice. And what do you do? You embrace them. 1 Peter 2 says we are a peculiar people, and some people are more peculiar than others. But they come into the family of God, and we embrace them because they are part of our family. They are our brothers. They are our sisters. Christian family is not conflict-free, but it is divorce-free. You cannot vote anybody off the island. You can't say to a Christian brother or sister, forget you. Get out of my life. I hope I never see you again because guess what? You will. You will spend forever with them. So you might as well repair that relationship 
now. People are more important than possessions. We're to treat each other as family. Third lesson, resolve problems in private before they become public. Look at chapter 13 and verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 19.15. It's a judicial principle. You can't convict someone of wrongdoing on the basis of only one witness because that witness could make up the story. Now, Paul may be pointing to the fact that this is his third visit, and he's saying, I came once, I came twice, and now this is your third strike. I think it's more likely that he's pointing to the way Jesus applied this same verse and this same principle in Matthew chapter 18. And that's where Jesus gives us the steps to reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. And I want you to go back there for a moment. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 13 and go back to Matthew chapter 18 for just one moment. Now, we're not going to go into this in depth, but I want to just touch on the first two steps in this process because they are the most important two steps. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. Step number one is to go to your brother or your sister and discuss it one-on-one. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, there are several keys to make this work. Number one, this reconciliation plan is for your brother or your sister. That means it's for two followers of Christ. This is not, gonna, this is not promised to work even when you have two believers, but it's not going to work if you have a believer and an unbeliever or two unbelievers. This is for two believers, two followers of Christ. Second, it requires that you go to this person. Now, we naturally think if somebody sinned against me, it's their responsibility to, first of all, figure out that they sinned against me. They may not even know. But our natural way of thinking is they need to figure out they sinned against me and then they need to come over here and crawl on their hands and knees. And if they crawl on their hands and knees, then I'll decide whether I forgive them or not. Who does Jesus say should go? The one who has been sinned against. It's my responsibility to go to that person who has sinned against me. That's totally opposite of the natural way we think. And yet that's what Jesus says. And oftentimes we sit and say, he sinned against me, so I'm more spiritual than him, when in reality, you're not listening to Jesus if you don't go to that person. Third, this should be done face to face. Don't do it in a letter. Don't do it in an email. Don't make a phone call. Don't tweet them. Don't do it on Facebook. This is too important not to do eye to eye and hug to hug. Jesus said go. And fourth, and probably most importantly, 
You must go alone. What's the first thing we usually do when someone sins against us? We turn around and we tell somebody else what they did. What is that? Gossip. First thing we do when someone sins against us is sin against them by gossiping. If you tell somebody else instead of going to them, then you need to go to them and confess, not confront, because you're the one who sinned. We're to go alone. Jesus said do it, notice, in private. And then fifthly, remember that your goal is to win your brother or sister back. Why do we often go? Because we want to win an argument. Jesus said this is not about winning an argument. It's about winning a friendship. You say, well, how important is this? Well, it's one of the most important things that you can do. In fact, if you turn back in Matthew to Matthew chapter 5, and we won't won't go back there, but you can look at it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, if you're making your... If you're bringing your offering to the altar and you're there and you remember in your mind that your brother has something against you, what are you to do? You're to leave your offering, go and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and make your offering to the Lord. What's he telling us? That fixing a broken relationship is more important to God than worship. In fact, you can't truly worship if you've got a broken relationship in your life. That's how important it is. That's how important it is to you personally. That's how important it is to God. So the first step is to go to that person face to face. Second step is to take a trusted friend or two. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 18. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And there's our verse. Jesus says, enlist one or two friends to help you resolve the conflict. In the legal world, this is known as arbitration or mediation. If you get to this step, Don't select your best friend who always sees everything your way. You think, well, he he always agrees with me, so I'll take him along and we can gang up on this guy. No, pick mutual friends between the two of you and pick a friend who is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Some people find drama in everything. They love drama. They will create drama where there is no drama. Don't bring that person with you. Bring someone who's spiritual enough to be a peacemaker. Someone who will help you rectify this issue. Somebody who is unbiased about the issue. Now, what happens is sometimes when you bring a couple friends with you, they find out that your real problem is you've got a blind spot yourself. Remember what Jesus said? Sometimes when you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye, you actually have a sight problem. You've got a log in your own eye. When your two friends get there, they may say, you know, the problem's not really your buddy here. The problem's you. 
because you've got a log in your own eye that you need to deal with. And hopefully, these friends can help the two of you be reconciled. But I want you to notice the overriding principle that Jesus gives, and that is to keep it as private as possible. Go alone. If that doesn't work, take one or two with you, and hopefully that will work. And if that works, it's over with, and you don't have to bring it up again. We're to keep it as private as possible. It's to be private before it ever has to become public. And then the third lesson, or the fourth lesson, coming back to 2 Corinthians 13, is to realize that weakness is not wimpiness. Look at chapter 13 and verse 2. Paul says, I have previously, previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Now, back in chapter 10, they accused Paul of writing tough letters. But then in person, they said, he's meek, he's weak, he's timid. And so Paul writes and says, this time, if you don't repent, you're going to get the kind of proof you're looking for because I'm going to be bold. Look at verse 4. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Weakness is the precondition to power. Weakness is the prelude to power. Paul said in the previous chapter, chapter 12 and verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. And he says Jesus demonstrated that. Jesus got as weak as you could get. He went to death on the cross. He died. He was buried. You can't get any weaker than that. And through his weakness and burial, he rose again, and he is now in the most powerful position you can be in. That's the principle. Through weakness, you get to power. And Paul says that same principle works in us. We are weak in ourselves, but in God's strength, we become powerful. And then Paul demonstrates how that power works in verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now this is a crucial verse. And we're going to come back to this verse and we're going to camp out in this verse because I want us to take some personal inventory about where we're at individually and spiritually in relationship to Jesus Christ. But what I want you to notice this morning is simply this. This is bold. This is bold. When is the last time you confronted your friend and said, you know, you need to examine your heart and see if you're really saved. When's the last time you said that to somebody? When's the last time you you came up to a friend and said, you need to do some personal inventory and see if Jesus is really in you? You say, well, Dan, that's offensive. No. That's crucial. If you're a real friend to somebody, what is more important to you 
all of the world except that person's relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, if you love someone as a friend, you're going to confront them. You're going to address it. If there's any doubt in their relationship with God, you want to make sure that that doubt is resolved. did a wedding Friday night for Kendall and Amy, and they were married. On Thursday, we had the uh, rehearsal dinner, and I wish you could all have been there because uh, people stood up and just shared testimonies about the things they had that Kendall and Amy had done in their lives and the impact they had had spiritually on their lives. But uh, one of the stories was about uh, probably his three best friends, and, and, and Kendall became convicted about something, and he set them all down in the living room, and he brought them in one at a time into the room, and he confronted each one of them. What was interesting was he confronted each one of them, and you know what? Did that make them love him less? No. That made them love him more. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. It's easy to kiss somebody, say, God bless you, you're doing great. It takes a real friend to be willing to wound you to do surgery on you so that you come out of that a better person. The person who loves you will confront you. Weakness is not wimpiness. We are to be weak in ourselves so that God's strength fills us, but we are not to be wimpy. We are to be willing to confront each other. Iron sharpens iron. We're to be willing to confront each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and say, you need to make some changes in these areas. Fifth lesson. Remember to pray. Look at verse 7. Now we pray. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. Why does Paul pray? Because he can't change another person. In fact, he can't even change himself. Why should you pray about relationships? Because you can't change the other person. You can't even change yourself. Only God can do that. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. And so we pray. What does Paul pray for here? Two things. First of all, he prays that you'll do what's right, that you'll correct the wrong. And secondly, at the end of verse 9, notice he prays that you will be made complete. Interesting word. It's a word that was used of resetting a dislocated limb. And so his prayer is that you would be restored to full health. That you would restore what is broken in your life. And what is that? Your relationship. That you would be restored in your relationship to God and that you would be restored in your relationship to me. 
So his prayer really is that our fractured friendship would be fixed. Now in closing, did you ever wonder what happened to the Hatfields and McCoys? Actually, the families became friends again. They've even had weddings between the two families. In 1979, members of the Hatfields playfully squared off against members of the McCoys with Richard Dawson on Family Feud. The Hatfields won. You know what the prize was? A pig. Every summer in Pikesville, Kentucky, the two families hold a joint family reunion and thousands of people attend. I would say this, if the Hatfields and McCoys can reconcile, you can. You can fix a fractured friendship. We're going to close our service by taking communion. We're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup and it's going to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's going to remind us of the cross. And the cross is what reconciles us to God and reconciles us to each other. But I want to underline an important principle. The Bible tells us that there's one loaf. And that one loaf is a picture of the one body of Christ, which is all believers in Christ. And so as we take the bread this morning, it's a reminder to us not only of Christ's body on the cross, but his body in this world, which is his church. And he wants that body to be one. So as we take the bread, it should be something that we're taking saying, God, I want to remember Christ's death for me, but I also want to celebrate the unity of the body of Christ. And if you've got broken relationships in the body of Christ, then you're not really practicing the symbolism of the bread. So as we take it this morning, let's challenge our hearts to say, God, I want to be doing everything I can to fix those fractured relationships in my life so that you are glorified through the unity of your church in the glory that Jesus deserves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you provide forgiveness for us fully and completely, that you bring us from enemies of yours to your, not just your friends, but your children, and you make that relationship altogether new. And Lord, with that same forgiveness that you have showered onto us, you give us the privilege of forgiving one another and practicing that forgiveness in the relationships around us. And Lord, I pray that those relationships would be restored, would be strong, would be like a family that has disagreements but resolves them and moves forward, that loves each other enough to point out the logs in our eye, to point out the blind spots in our life, to bring us to where you want us to be. And as we take the bread and cup this morning and celebrate the cross, I pray that you would allow us to also celebrate the unity that you have established in your church, the body of Christ. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name.